Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. While the Stonewall Uprising in 1969 is usually considered the beginning of the gay rights movement, a recent book reveals the actual history predates Stonewall by a dozen years. Later, we'll hear about The Deviant's War, a new biography of Franklin Kameny, a brilliant scientist who became the grandfather of the gay rights movement. First, a diverse array of film offerings. Greater Atlanta has been nicknamed Yollywood, thanks to the large amount of filming and entertainment production in our area. But before that surge of industry began in the 1980s, Atlanta already had its own vital cinema culture. The Atlanta Film Festival presents its 44th annual event beginning September 17th. Joining us now is Alyssa Armand, Director of Programming for the Atlanta Film Festival. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the festival originally was supposed to take place in the spring, but postponed due to the pandemic. Would you tell us what went on behind the scenes over the last few months to get you to this point? Yeah, absolutely. Things moved really quickly for us at first. I think really March is when everything became real. The first major festival to cancel was South by Southwest early March. And I can actually pinpoint it to the day that the big change happened for us on March 12th. We actually started that day doing this kind of lovely lock-in programming crash course session where the whole staff went in our conference room, we had snacks, and we just kind of did this real deep dive into the films that we were going to play. And then later that day, we found out that the Georgia State University campus was closing down, which is where our offices are hosted. So... As of the following day, March 13th, we started working from home. We've been doing that ever since. 
And kind of over those next few weeks, we really had to assess the situation and we ended up deciding to postpone the festival with the hopes that if we move to the fall, it might be able to occur kind of in its original form, which as we see now, that wasn't possible, but pushing back did give us the opportunity to kind of explore all of our options and reach the festival that we'll be presenting now. The festival lineup you announced in the spring was extensive with 38 feature films and 86 different short films. With the postponement, did you need to make any major changes to the lineup? We were actually really lucky. Almost all of the films from that original lineup ended up joining us for this September edition as well. I think total we lost around 10 films. There were a few features that released in between the original intended dates and the new ones, but overall, I think 140 from that original lineup will be screening in September as well. Alyssa, I can imagine there were challenges relating to moving to a digital format for the festival. This will be the first time ever the festival will have movies streaming online. What were those challenges? It's hard to say because we really didn't know how the filmmakers would embrace that model. There's been a lot of conversations kind of in the film festival world about making these formats something that they could trust, you know, to share their work on and make sure that screening a digital festival would still play in with their kind of intention for the life of their film and wouldn't mess up anything with distribution or things like that. So we also had to figure out how we would showcase films virtually. We were extremely fortunate that our ticketing platform, Eventive, was able to kind of swerve and build out this amazing streaming model practically from scratch in relation to all of this. So we had that lovely transition and they have you know, all of the security features that really reassured the filmmakers that their films would be as safe with us on that digital platform as they would have been if we had been able to screen it in a standard theater setting. Yeah. Another significant change is your use of the drive-in. What can people attending the drive-in experience have to look forward to? It's funny because I feel like every year we're trying to talk about the things that are unique about the Atlanta Film Festival this year. And I think in 2020, it's almost more like what's not unique about it. Previous listeners might remember our executive director, Christopher Escobar, talking about setting up the non-contact drive-ins at the Plaza Theater and Dad's Garage. Um, And we'll be using both of those venues. So we're very lucky that they were able to spend the summer months really setting up those and perfecting them and they've been so successful and we're also adding on a third venue just for the festival at pullman yard which we're tremendously excited about because not only is that kind of like a beautiful iconic atlanta landmark site of filming for numerous atl shot films and tvs but it actually allows us to do a indoor drive-in which is very very unique Um, wait wait how does that work (laughs) so they have these beautiful warehouse spaces and the building that we're using is actually open on both ends so it allows proper air circulation so we can have 50 cars in that indoor space 
which is amazing because we get to start the screenings a little bit earlier. We have cover from weather. So it just really provides a unique experience as if the drive-in already isn't unique for our audiences. Really? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't thought about rain pouring down on your car. That could interfere with the sound you receive. Luckily, all of the audio will come through um, the radios, which is nice because the viewers can kind of adjust it to their settings. But we've kind of also been looking at our other venues, just reinforcing for weather as well. I think a lot of our filmmakers are really excited about just the thought of their films being on a drive-in screen. Drive-ins obviously bring a certain level of nostalgia. And I think a lot of them maybe never thought their film could be at a drive-in. So it's really been a rewarding experience for them. Oh, yes. Well, I remember when Chris Escobar was on our show in March and he spoke about the drive-in possibility, which then became reality. I mean, it was thrilling to see how you all pivoted to that and and how the Alliance Theater will be doing that for their production of A Christmas Carol. Yeah, it's been so wonderful to see how the arts have kind of adapted in this new world and, you know, found ways to exist safely with the parameters that we're kind of facing right now. Let's talk about the lineup. The films span a wide variety of genres. One that stands out in particular is the comedy 15 Things You Didn't Know About Bigfoot. So we're here in Georgia at the largest Bigfoot convention in the Southeast. Well, here she is. I know she looks kind of small, but she'll fit the two of you real comfortably. Fit us for what? For the field expedition tonight. Did Shane approve this? What is up, YouTube? It's your boy, the Cryptid Commander, hunting the Sasquatch himself. While our first day had been fun, we were beginning to wonder if our guide was reliable. Man, Jeff, I pulled out the map, I asked you if that's where we turned, and you said yes! Shut up! Is he mad that someone caught him in a lie, or is he mad that no one believes him? What can you tell us about the film without spoiling the 15 things we didn't know? So that's actually a really wonderful addition because it's also a Georgia film. It was shot here, um, made by Georgia filmmakers. So we're so happy that we get to bring that to the drive-in and virtually. It's just a tremendous comedy. Bigfoot, you know, may or may not appear. I don't want to spoil that (laughs) far, but it's just such a tremendous example of Georgia filmmaking and kind of the talent that is here. And the lineup this year is more diverse than ever. And and you all have been good about that going along. How have you ensured that everyone has been properly represented? We always prioritize, um, especially with our filmmakers, making sure that we're representing diverse perspectives. With our documentary programming as well, you know, we really look to find films a lot of the times that are made by people from the communities that the story is about and avoiding the more extractive type storytelling. Um, We think, you know, independent film provides an opportunity to reach new voices and find new perspectives. And we're very fortunate that we receive the volume of submissions that we do. So it's really honestly not difficult for us to do this. Um, The films are there and they find us. And so we're just, really excited 
to showcase these, you know, different voices and perspectives and a diverse and inclusive lineup of films. Um, we really try to find hopefully something for everyone in the program every year, which is why we focus on all sorts of genres and formats and styles as well. So we're really looking for kind of like just a grab bag all over that everyone can find something to enjoy. Any particular films you can mention by women or filmmakers of color that are outstanding? Absolutely. So um, one film in our new Mavericks track, which is for both women directors and leads, is Test Pattern. Um, it's also by a Black woman director, and it's a really just kind of chilling look at a woman's experience with both healthcare and kind of the reckoning of the Me Too movement in a way, and obviously the racial impact of her existence as a Black woman within both of those spaces. This whole village is another world inside a world. Homeless youth come to this area because this is what we know as safe so this is where we socialize we make some mangoes out of summer i'm definitely going to be in house i can feel it the police make it seem like they're going to stop prostitution they're homeless so they you know they turn into this lifestyle officer you want to search me they just don't like it Ma, all I'm asking you to do is just see me. That's it. I don't know her as Krista. This is my nephew. What's wrong with taking this lifestyle and setting it outside your mother's door? We also have the documentary feature Pure Kids, um, directed by Elegance Bratton, which follows queer youth of color um, over the course of many years. And the director really just shot that kind of guerrilla style on a handheld. And so it's such an intimate exploration of their lives and their challenges that they face. I know that one of the festival goals is to highlight some local emerging filmmakers. Who are some of those participating this year? So every year, the first Thursday, we call it first night, which is usually kind of where we do that local spotlight. So we have our local shorts block this year it's titled Stomping Ground. It has a whole host of Georgia directors, some films that were shot here, some that weren't. And it really just showcases kind of a nice breadth of what's going on in Georgia and kind of the talent that's here. But in addition also to 15 Things You Didn't Know About Bigfoot, we do have Georgia features as well. Another one is Golden Arm, which is in our new maps track and is a comedy feature. And it comes from two Georgia writers. So it's really great to see the Georgia talent kind of popping up in different ways, whether or not the film was shot here. We also see works from Georgia talent that, you know, might have gone and shot the film elsewhere. On Friday, September 18th, you will screen a series called Outside the Lines, Technicolor Trips Beyond the Boundaries of Convention. That's intriguing. What types of films can we expect to see from that series? So that's actually our animated shorts block, um, which we have every year. We typically do two animated blocks, one of which is kind of our family-friendly programming, which this year it's what I call kid shorts. <laughs> but the outside the lines block is kind of the more adult-leaning animation. Um, it's always going to be 
a real variety of style, both 2D and 3D, but also a whole scope of genres. So if you're interested in animated shorts, that would definitely be one to check out. The Atlanta Film Festival has been good about including educational events. And I know the creative conference has been going on for several years now. What does that hold for attendees this year? So the creative conference will be entirely virtual this year. And most of the programming will be actually available on an on-demand basis throughout the whole festival dates. Um, If anyone's attended before, normally we do the creative conference the Monday through Friday of the festival during the day. So this is kind of a really great opportunity for our viewers to experience more panels and really get to see everything. The festival is very limited across the board by, you know, you can only do so many things at one time. And so we're really excited that people will be able to kind of dip their toes a little bit of everywhere. So in addition to those VOD panels, we actually also have two interactive workshops, one on pitching and one on composing. Those will happen the first Saturday of the festival. And then outside of that, we have five free panels really tied to filmmaking in the time of COVID and how that could work. Um, We wanted to make those free just to make sure they were accessible to everyone because it's really valuable information. Um, But we also have 15 master classes on subjects like show running, producing, directing, cinematography, and nine panels that kind of match more the format of our typical panels, focusing on diversity, family-friendly entertainment, marketing, branding, everything. So it's really, I think, again, with like the films, the Creative Conference has something for everyone, for I think both new filmmakers and kind of seasoned professionals. We'll have a series of master classes, including one with um, Damon Lindelof, who was obviously recently nominated for Emmys for Watchmen. Um, I think kind of a benefit, you know, to being in this virtual space is we get to work with people from all over that we may not have been able to bring to a physical festival, but we can easily catch them on Zoom and share their expertise. A few films that caught my attention, I was hoping you could just touch upon. The Outside Story is a comedy starring Brian Tyree Henry. I so admire his talent. What can you tell us about The Outside Story? Yeah, so that's a lovely comedy feature. I think it's really the first thing that he's gotten to be the lead on um, that we've seen. And that obviously was super special for us, given his role on Atlanta. You know, he's very beloved in this city. And it's set in Brooklyn. He gets locked outside of his apartment and kind of has to go through this mad series of events to get back in, interacting with his neighbors. No. No. I am locked out of my apartment. I repeat, I'm locked out of my apartment. Man down, call me back. My keys are right there, right there. Okay, I'm gonna need to see some ID. My my license is in my apartment. No one's got keys for you? No. You just moved in? I've lived here for three years. Weird, I've never seen you before. Hey, it's Charles from Two Floors Down. Who? Your fellow building inhabitant, Charles. I think it's kind of maybe especially interesting and maybe relevant in this era where we are kind of 
held up in our homes often by default. And that also comes from Georgia producers and alumni of our festival. So we're super excited to bring that to the drive-in screen. And there are some very famous names associated with Fandango at the Wall. Those names being Carlos Santana, Quincy Jones, and Andrew Young. Yes. What is this documentary about? So it takes place often at the border wall, and it's focusing on the musical performance that they set up at the border wall. This all began when I read about a librarian who started a music festival at the border between the United States and Mexico. He invited us to join him to sing, perform, and dance. The librarian took us to Veracruz, Mexico to meet the masters of this mystical tradition. This is not just a story. It's a vision of a world full of hope, friendship, and love. We were so excited to get this film, especially because of those Georgia connections. And we were hoping in our original incarnation of the festival to pair this with a musical performance, but we're so excited that we still get to bring it to the drive-in. I believe we'll have some filmmakers in attendance as well. And yeah, it's just gonna be such a grand showcase of, I think something about music and music-based films at the drive-in is gonna be really special especially considering the audio will be coming through car radios. There's just something that really connects and I think elevates that experience. Alyssa, congratulations to you and Chris and everyone associated with the festival for the, this robust offering. And here's hoping we get to gather in person together next year. Thank you so much. Alyssa Armand, Director of Programming for the Atlanta Film Festival. There will be more information on the festival and screening times on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The importance of Franklin Kameny in the history of gay civil rights cannot be overstated. Yet, his name is not widely known. Eric Cervini has set out to change that with his new book, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual Versus the United States of America. He is with us now via Zoom. Dr. Cervini, welcome to WABE City Lights. Thanks so much for having me. When I read that this book was the basis of your doctoral dissertation, I wasn't surprised as your research is so extensive. What drew you to write about Kameny? Well, you know, it, it, it was a seven-year-long process. <laughs> it was a, quite a while in the making. And so I first stumbled across his name way back when in around 2013 and happened to watch the film Milk about Harvey Milk and I had just come out of the closet about a year or two before and after watching that film I was just shocked that I hadn't heard that story before you know as a 21 year old and it got me to wondering what other stories are out there from our past from American history 
that also have not been taught in public schools, in university curricula. And as I was searching for Milk's name and other gay activists who, you know, maybe needed a book written about them or needed their own film, the first name, of course, to pop up was Frank Kameny, who historians have long regarded as the grandfather of the gay rights movement, but uh, until now has never had his own book. I have to tell you, I imagined this as a biopic, and that's saying a lot for a doctoral dissertation. I don't, <laughs> I don't think many of them reach that stage. Have you been approached? We, yes, and uh, fingers crossed we'll have some news coming out in the next few weeks or months, so we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm actually based in Hollywood, but I, I never... Uh, Never get too excited with the, especially everything's kind of in pause right now with production. So we'll see. I'm, I'm just encouraging people to read the book for now. <laughs> okay. Well, please let us know if a film or miniseries comes sure. about. So you first discovered Kameny in this treasure trove of research, letters, archives. At the age of four, he wanted to be a scientist. And by age six, Franklin Kameny decided to become an astronomer. I would say that's a rather precocious child. Yes. Would, would you talk about his youth and the path he took to realize his professional dream? Well, I'm glad you start there because so many people dive into his activism. And I always have to remind them, he, as you've said, began his life growing up in Queens in New York City in the 1930s. He wanted to be an astronomer. That was it. He wanted to study the stars and eventually he was successful. He went to Harvard and graduated in 1956 uh, with a PhD in astronomy. And anyone who studied American foreign relations knows that the next year was very significant in that it was the launch of Sputnik. So you could not have picked a better time to be an astronomer in the world, not let alone one from uh, with a Harvard education. And so he was really positioned to be one of the framers of the American manned space program. He very likely would have worked alongside Werner von Braun and others in the creation of NASA two years later. But as he began his government job, uh, he was working for the Defense Department uh, beginning in 1957. Within months, they found out he was gay. And because of that, and solely because of that, he was purged from his job and banned from working for the federal government for the rest of his life. So here is quite possibly the best qualified scientist in America to work for NASA. And we should add, unlike Werner von Braun, was not a proud Nazi. But exactly. An American who had served his country in World War II nobly. How did Frank Kameny respond to the injustice he faced? Well, one thing that was very unique about Frank was his attachment to logic. It was just something that he identified very early on as his life is very important of this idea of rationality, the scientific process. And of course, discrimination of any kind is inherently illogical. And that was really how he first began fighting back 
And that was what set him apart because most people in his position, if you were fired for being gay or the government discovered a sexual indiscretion, then you would quietly move on with your life. You would try to get another job, a different profession, maybe a different city. And Frank Hamney said, absolutely not. I've trained 15, 20 years to be an astronomer, an astronomer I will be. And so he begins fighting back, of course, at the administrative level until that no longer uh, works. It gets denied at every stage of his appeal. And then he becomes the first to take his case and that of any gay federal employee to the Supreme Court. He becomes the first openly gay man to petition the court uh, in 1961. And so, of course, everyone has heard about the, the Supreme Court decision just this past June. And that was really the culmination of a 60-year battle for employment rights that was initiated by Frank Kamenick. Mm. And you bring out how extraordinary Kameny was in his appeal, a 12-page written appeal in which he never denied his homosexuality. Would you elaborate on his defense on that emphasis on morality and, and philosophy, which speaks volumes to his integrity, but must have baffled those he was appealing to. Yes, yes. And of course, you know, this is in the 1950s, and the ACLU and other civil libertarians were used to fighting the government on uh, due process grounds. And that was really how he began his appeal, saying that he wasn't afforded any sort of evidence, anything like that. It was not a fair uh, dismissal. But then once he reached the Supreme Court and his attorney, who was uh, affiliated with the ACLU, actually abandoned him and said that you just don't have a shot. And so he wrote the cert petition on his own. And this document, as you said, was revolutionary in that it was a manifesto for gay rights and, and gay power a full decade before Stonewall. And one of the ways that he battled the rationale of the purges, the gay purges, because the government claims that if you were gay, then you were inherently immoral and you were inherently secretive about your condition and therefore susceptible to blackmail. Uh, if Soviet agents found out you were gay, they could get uh, classified information from you. And so he said, well, I'm going to make an equally arbitrary argument in response to prove that the government's rationale was also illogical, was also unconstitutional and arbitrary. And so he argued that homosexual activity was actually a moral good. And he made this claim openly. He submitted the, the, his case as Kameny versus Brucker, the Secretary of the Army, instead of Anonymous versus the Secretary of the Army, which was absolutely his prerogative. So in my dissertation and in this book, I argue that was really the beginnings of what gay pride is, what we celebrate each and every June of declaring uh, the moral goodness of one's condition and also doing so openly, whether it's on the streets or in the case of Frank Kameny in the Supreme Court. So the gay movement really began in 1953 rather than in 1969 with Stonewall. Absolutely. And of course, Stonewall is in the book, and it's an incredibly important moment in uh, queer history and in American history. 
But I think you also have to rewind a bit and see what was the context and who were the figures responsible for creating some of these ideological uh, foundations for gay power and queer liberation, because this Supreme Court document really was the beginnings of what we now know as pride. And he eventually translated it into something a bit more uh, pithy and compact. He simply said, gay is good. And I think you also have to look at the 1960s and Frank Kameny because it allows us to understand how important the Black Freedom Movement was also in the development of pride. Because what was Frank Kameny relying upon and basing his strategy upon? Well, it was the Black Freedom Movement. He was looking at Greensboro, uh, the sit-ins in 1960, and saying, I want to also reclaim morality and prove that the oppressor, the federal government, is the immoral one. He heard Stokely Carmichael saying, black is beautiful, and he translated that into gay is good. And so we have to show that process of Frank Kameny really (laughs) acting as a Xerox machine, as I like to call it, of borrowing from the Black Freedom Movement and creating what we now know as gay pride. In the earlier days of his activism, Kameny wanted demonstrators to wear suits and ties to appear respectable as they picketed. This was something also important to civil rights leaders at the time, that you appear impeccably well-dressed and dignified. How did Frank Kameny evolve as an activist? It's a great question because that's really the story that the book tells, is that so many histories and, and you know, popular depictions of, of, of people in history paint them as static, that they don't change over time. And of course, people do change, and especially their political tactics and their own personalities even. And as you mentioned, Frank Kameny was obsessed with this idea of, of order and projecting this respectable image, which of course was borrowed from the Black Freedom Movement. Students who were, who were uh, demonstrating on the streets in the South were told to dress as if they were going to church. Uh, so because activists knew that they would be photographed and this was the depiction that the American public would see of their minority. And Frank Kameny borrowed that same tactic, as you said, requiring men to wear suits and ties and women to wear uh, dresses and high heels uh, when marching outside of the White House on the 4th of July or the Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And of course, you know, one thing you have to recognize when you talk about this strategy is how is it also exclusionary, right? What about people who didn't have a suit or people who didn't have federal jobs to begin with or maybe who didn't fit within the gender binary, who didn't identify as either male or female? So what I argue in the book is one of the reasons why Frank Kameny was forgotten and why the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement or homophile movement, as it was called, was forgotten was because it was inherently exclusionary, because they kept themselves so small by having this uh, attachment to respectability, which may have been necessary for them to make that step, but certainly as the 60s progressed, ultimately held them back. And that's why you start to see tensions within the homophile movement as a new generation of activists say, this isn't enough, this isn't representative of the entirety of the queer population in America. And that's why Stonewall was so important because you start to see the very least respectable, the 
the most marginalized in a community putting their bodies on the line and galvanizing an entire movement. We'll be back with author Eric Cervini discussing his new book, The Deviant's War, after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with author Eric Cervini. His recent book is titled The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Here, Dr. Cervini discusses one of the earliest LGBT organizations in the U.S., the Mattachine Society. So I'm in Los Angeles, and that is where the original Mattachine Society was founded by a group of of communists and fellow travelers in 1950 uh, here in, in the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles. And The Mattachine name was actually a reference to uh, medieval jesters in the 15th century in France who criticized the throne and were able to get away with it because they were wearing masks and they did so under the guise of of satire. Uh, And so one of the founders was a music teacher who studied them and uh, used this name as a cheeky euphemism for how the gay minority really was concealing their true identities behind the mask of being straight. And so that was the first Mattachine Society. And Frank Kameny, of course, knew about this organization. There were different chapters, but he just took the name. He he didn't really have any regard for uh, asking permission to use it. And that was one of the most foundational organizations in America, certainly the first national gay rights organization. And Frank Kameny recognize, you know, this is a a historically important name, and so I'm going to borrow it, and I think it's a name that we should all recognize and and also criticize. Well, on that topic of history, I was absolutely fascinated to read about the history of Mattachine and that it dated to 1435 in France, and you're right that Originally, the name was Société Joyeuse, which I would think with my schoolgirl French, the Society of Joyous Ones, Joyous could be translated as gay in that. (laughs) Right. You know, I never made that connection, but that's exactly right. And uh, Harry Hay, the founder of the Mattachine 
hypothesized that those organizations, groups in, in, in France and then also Italy, were filled with performers and also drag queens in the 15th century who were, you know, uh, venerated. And he hypothesized that they were perhaps gay, even though that word didn't exist at the time. But I think that connection uh, uh, or similarity in uh, <laughs> uh, etymology shouldn't be ignored. That's, that's fascinating. But I love that it's a positive notion. And, you know, for all of our inclination to want to dismiss stereotypes, when it's something good, in this case, Renaissance-era music theater people, you got to love it. Yep, yep. (laughs) Especially the descriptions of some of the, you know, on on Mardi Gras, of the processions and the parades of the Medicine organizations and uh, some of these societies with uh, Mother Fool, as she was called, who was essentially a drag queen on a chariot surrounded by hundreds of men who were part of this Mattachine organization. This is the 15th century, right? And where uh, uh, gender norms and, and society were a bit more fluid because you didn't have the concept of being a heterosexual yet. It was just a matter of your, your behavior uh, and the identity was really quite fluid back then. Which is very important and back to the serious now, very important for us to be reminded of that, that ours is a much more recent received prejudice. I was invited to an event several years ago for the Lambda Legal Defense Society. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, here in Atlanta, they do such great legal work pro bono. I didn't know about ancient Greece and how perfectly normal it was to be fluid sexually. So there is just so much rich detail in your book. In 1968, there was a meeting of the North American Conference of Homophile Organization, which looks like Nacho, but you know, it's pronounced NACO. Would you tell us about their resolution and the slogan they adopted? Yes. Well, 68 was a a very important year for many reasons, but that particular conference was the one at which Frank Hamney introduced his proposal that the official slogan of the homophile movement was simply gay is good. And as I mentioned, he, he, he borrowed that from the Black Freedom Movement and the concept of Black is beautiful. And both of those phrases were seen as a psychological antidote to the sense of inferiority that so many people, whether you identified as Black or gay, felt because society told you that that is how you should feel. And Frank Hamney, just like Stokely Carmichael, recognized that that was the root cause of so many of the problems plaguing their movements because Frank Hamney believed part of the reason why his demonstrations were so small, why it was so difficult to recruit people to sue the federal government, why it was so hard to convince gay Americans that, in fact, they were not sick. They did not suffer 
a mental disorder, as psychiatrists would have had you believe. He knew that he had to combat that sense of inferiority first. And so that is why in 1968, uh, the homophile organizations that attended that NATO conference adopted that phrase. And this was an entire year before Stonewall, that they were declaring gay is good. And although it was isolated within the homophile movement, it did not extend far beyond it. It was not until Stonewall that that phrase was then adopted by the new generation of gay liberationists who brought it onto the front pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine. It wasn't until the riots that the phrase exploded in scale. Perhaps Frank Kameny's greatest achievement was getting the American Psychiatric Association to acknowledge that homosexuality was not an illness. How did he accomplish that? Well, it was one of his chief accomplishments, and you can't talk about that accomplishment without also talking about Barbara Giddings. It was a team effort between the two of them. Barbara Giddings was one of the founders of the Daughters of Belitis, the lesbian organization, one of the founders of the New York chapter who teamed up with Frank Kameny to fight the American Psychiatric Association for the same reason that gay is good was so important as a phrase. They were fighting really the psychiatric community because the psychiatric principle at the time was that if you were gay, you suffered from a mental disorder. In fact, they codified that notion in the DSM, their their handbook of mental disorders. And so beginning really in, in 1971, Frank Hamney and Barbara Giddings began a uh, concerted effort to change the, the definition of homosexuality and remove it from the handbook of mental disorders, the DSM. And they were successful within a matter of just a few years. The homosexuality was removed from the DSM in 1973. So it's incredible to see how rapidly they were able to affect societal change by simply creating coalitions and making logical arguments. I know that is cause for celebration, but it strikes me so sad that that's less than 50 years ago that you had educated people in advanced medicine still having acknowledged or believed before that it was an illness. Mm-hmm. Right. Despite evidence, overwhelming evidence by people and researchers like Evelyn Hooker, who was studying that exact issue in the 1950s in Los Angeles, finding that there was absolutely no distinction between homosexuals and heterosexuals when it came to mental wellness. And so it it really shows that no profession, uh, whether you're in the sciences uh, or elsewhere, is, is immune from prejudice. And I think now, especially as we're having a conversation on on racial relations and also trans matters, uh, we're seeing that we need to continuously evaluate our uh, assumptions and what we may consider to be a given uh, or scientifically based and say, is that really the way things should be? Or maybe uh, there is no basis for excluding trans people from the military or any of these matters that we're now confronting today. Kameny sent 25 publishers a proposal for a book to be titled The Federal Government Versus the Homosexual American Citizen. 
Eric, the subtitle of your book is The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Some symmetry there. I'm so glad you caught it. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're the first to have actually caught where the the subtitle came from. So thank you for for actually reading it. (laughs) Oh, I am so glad that I wasn't overthinking it. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you talk about the title of your book, The Deviance War, because there's irony there, too. (laughs) Exactly. And one of the words that the psychiatric community devised to refer not just to the homosexual, but to anyone who deviated from sexual norms, now we would refer to that umbrella term as, as queer, But back then, they didn't have queer, they didn't have LGBTQ plus to refer to this community of people who deviated from from society. And one of the words that the government had uh, and psychiatrists used was deviant. So it was a very effective, convenient, but also cheeky (laughs) title that I was able to use because of course the cover of the book is modeled after the 1950 Senate report that really legitimized the gay purges uh, for the next 25 years. Uh, and because we also get the perspective of the government, whether it's the FBI uh, or the federal bureaucracy, I wanted to give that sense that it wasn't just rainbow flags in the Supreme Court, that this was an overarching narrative of America and the experience of those who fought back, whether it was Frank Kameny or Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, but also recognize how the government viewed the other, viewed sexual deviance as a threat to America as a whole. So depending on <laughs> what your views are when, when you pick up the book, it takes a little while to figure out, oh, who who is this book really about? And uh, that was an experience I wanted people to have when they first learned of the title. Mm. There was some closure and joy in the end. Please talk about Franklin Kameny and President Obama. Well, Frank Kameny continued his life of activism after the 1960s, even though the book ends in 1971 with the eclipse of the Mattachine Society of Washington, the group he founded. And he lived to quite an old age. Uh, He passed away in 2011 during the Obama administration. And one of the most remarkable parts of the story, I think, in his final years especially, is the Obama administration recognized what the government what the administration had done to Frank Kameny and the tragedy of exiling a genius, someone who could have been the architect of the American Manned Space Program from the government. And the head of the successor to the Civil Service Commission, the the entity responsible for purging Frank Kameny was actually an openly gay man. Uh, He was one of the first cabinet level positions ever to be filled by a gay man. And he Uh, In 2009, his name was John Barry, invited Frank Kameny to the White House for a official apology to say, I'm sorry uh, for what the government did to you. And Frank Kameny simply stood up and said, apology accepted, and was there in the Oval Office as President Obama expanded uh, health benefits for LGBTQ plus employees 
and he passed away just a year later. There's a beautiful photo of that moment at the end of the book. Would you please read the last line on page 383 through page 384? At the age of 86, Kamney remained proudest of just one thing. His formulation of the simple, logical assertion, once unfathomable, that homosexuality was morally good. Here you are, a national hero on a small scale, he had told Clifford Norton, the victorious yet closeted former NASA employee in 1969. You have fought the very government of the United States itself and won. If I were you just now, impoverishment and all, he continued, I'd be holding up my head in pride and looking anyone straight in the eye and saying, I'm a homosexual, and so what? Accept me on my terms, or you don't get me, and you'll lose more than I will, and that includes your family. The closet is getting very stuffy. Come out. The fresh air and the sunshine are invigorating. Camney died in his sleep on October 11, 2011, a sensible day to die, since it was National Coming Out Day. Gay is good. It is. And that is that. Dr. Eric Cervini. His recent book is The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Carla Redding Andrews, Otis Redding's daughter and executive director of the Otis Redding Foundation. She'll discuss the new children's book, Respect, which is based on her father's 1965 hit song. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzis. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.